Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. And let's bow once more in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your day, the first day of the week where we gather together as brothers and sisters. Lord, may we be an encouragement to one another. But may we also hear from you, from your word, first to understand it and second to obey it. These things we ask in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Well, we've got our work cut out for us this morning, and uh, this is one of those Sundays where um, if we can agree together, I'll try to talk fast, if you can listen fast. Uh, We'll see how that goes sometimes We need a little variation. How do the speech teachers say? Fast and slow, high and low. That gives enough variety that it doesn't get boring. But um, it begins where we left off, which was one long run-on sentence, an introduction. He gets to the point here in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. The you would be Titus. That's the book. It's named after him. The, The author is Paul. So Paul's telling Titus... I left you in Crete. Now, we didn't really touch on this last week, but it makes sense that this letter is not only privately written to Titus because there's too much said here that Titus would already know. This would be circulated around the area in those house churches so everyone would know not only what Paul said, but know that Titus is carrying these things out by appointment from Paul himself. So when he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, at least everyone knows what to expect. And what he says to do specifically is appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's deliberately left behind to carry out a specific task. Now, what he says here, put into order or set straight, depending on your translation, if we were to dig down into the Greek how this was written when it was written the first time, the word there is ortho. We get our word orthodontics, orthopedic. It means to have something that's crooked or broken set straight so it'll grow that way. Think of ordering plants from the nursery and you put those three stakes on it to make sure that while it's in its juvenile state, it'll grow up straight. At a certain point, you can remove those restraints. It's already set that way. Well, this is in the beginning stages, and he's also used the word directed here. If you see uh, put straight, what remained into order, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That word directed has the ortho in it as well, but it has a prefix in it that means thoroughly. So I guess what you could say if we were putting this in other words, Paul is telling Titus to fix it, fix it good and fix it right. 
You ever said it that way at the, I don't know, the car garage or something? Now fix this. Fix it good. And I want it fixed right. I don't want to come back and it's messed up. You know, they might just say, well, you can carry it to some other garage because, you know, we're not magicians here. It's your car. You broke it. Um, I think he's being clear and he's being to the point that the bar is set high, that there's a correct way to do this, and we're going to try to do it correctly. So what needs to be fixed? Specifically, it had to do with the appointment of elders in every town. We talked last week about how this little book is, is broken up into three chapters. The first one on leadership, the second one on membership within the church, and then the third on its witness. So first of all, those who are leading, uh, second, those who are following, and third, how the leaders and the followers both get the gospel out to the world who needs to hear it. So the next paragraph which we study, this is the first, is, is, is or should make it obvious why leadership is first out of the gate. Because if the leadership is wrong, everything else is going to be wrong following. That's pretty straightforward. And it's not only true of the ministry, but it's true in a lot of places, wouldn't you say? If the leadership's wrong, how can you expect good results? If it goes for business, or if it goes for education, or if it goes for medicine, uh, and it would certainly be that way in the home, wouldn't it? And if we're talking about, like, like we mentioned last week, that if God designed the church, he gets to say how it's run. God designed the home. He gets to say how that is run. It, it, it's not rocket science, and there's, there's not a lot of difference between the two. Uh, despite the fact that culture sees it less and less of a concrete idea and more and more is just an opinion, mom and dad's leadership and their authority, too, means everything in that home. And it means everything in the church as well. God designed the family. God designed the church. We must behave within the parameters God laid out before the home, before the church. Uh, roles of authority, leadership, all of it. And it'll work beautifully because that's the way he designed it. If we don't do it that way, we shouldn't be surprised that it'll turn out a mess. Whenever we throw those instructions aside and start putting it together, though we don't always admit it, you have a problem when there's parts left over, unless the bag with the parts left over says spare parts on it. But if it's not spare parts, then you left something out. Maybe it'll fall apart. Maybe your kids will be sleeping on the floor instead of on that top bunk you thought you put together, right? God designed it all. He gets to say. So most problems in the church, this passage is about the church, can be traced back to defective leadership. And that's what this chapter is to address. Get it right to start with. It's not a set it and forget it. It'll have to be maintained. But as long as it's done God's way, you can expect God's results. So Paul, he's the author. He's used two words in what we just read a moment ago to refer to God's leadership model and the roles that he expects to use. Both words, and you'd need a Greek New Testament to see these, uh, presbyteros, that's where we get the term Presbyterian from, by the way, and episkopos, guess what? That's where we get episcopal from. They're both means of governing churches, but they're translated into your English Bibles with the same word, and that'd be elder. Uh, you may have pastor, some translations you may have shepherd. 
And there is another word in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5 that gives us uh, that idea of shepherding. But all three of those different Greek words are usually translated the same way into our English Bibles. Though there are some nuanced differences between each of those three, pile them all together and you've got a decent definition for pastor or elder. Um, These two that we've got here... Uh, Presbyteros highlights the person. Episcopos highlights the function. So the formerly simply means an older man, while the latter means an overseer. And usually the overseer is an older, experienced man. So it's no shocker that both of those come together nicely. Uh, If you add the other, leading, oversight, and shepherding from another passage... You've, you've got a, a, a good definition, but in any place, it doesn't matter if you're reading here in Titus or in First Peter or anywhere in the New Testament, whenever you see those words used, it's always by the book. There's never freelance shepherding, overseeing, or leading going on. It's always by the crook of the word. If the shepherd has a staff with a crook on it and you're leading or prodding, it's by the book. Don't miss that. It'll come up a lot as we go through these in the weeks of the summer. And that's why a congregation should always be encouraged when its pastors invite them to turn in their Bibles too and then stick to the script. That way you know everybody's honest. I'm showing you what's in this book, explaining what's in this book so we can obey this book. It's bad when you sit down in a church and basically in so many words you're, you're listening to, uh, you won't need your Bibles because I'm not really going to talk about much coming from there. It'll be good stuff. It's just not scriptural. Sit for that for a few weeks and understand this isn't a Bible preaching, explaining to obey church. Find another one. It's not the way we've been told to do it in scripture. It's easier to do it other ways. You get to skip all the stuff that you don't want to hear and I don't want to preach. But if we're going to stick with a book, you have to hear what you don't want to hear and have to preach what I don't want to preach. Sometimes, for the most part, it's a joy to do this, both to hear it and to speak it. But um, the bottom line, we'll do this up front today. We're going to get to verse 9, and in verse 9, we're going to learn that uh, the elder in verse 5 and the overseer in verse 7, even though they may be translated with the same word elder, They, together, it's more than one, by the time you get to verse 9, caring for the church by teaching the church. So after all these requirements that we're going to go through for the next several minutes, in the end, your elder is a teacher. That's basically his job. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught to him so that he may be able to give instruction. That's him teaching someone else. And sound a doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he knows the real McCoy, and he knows the fake, and he can explain it and teach it. Sound doctrine. I don't know if you use the word sound to describe the quality of something, but given the option, if you're going to fly to California, do you want to fly in a sound aircraft or one that's just thrown together? Would you like sound advice about your 401k? or whatever vehicle you use for your retirement, or just any old advice would do. No, it needs to be sound. So if God's going to run the church the way he saw fit, we're going to stick to the sound teaching and doctrine. So 
Without getting ahead of ourselves, let's just summarize what we've done so far. Uh, we learned already uh, local. That's what our leadership should look like. He said, appoint elders in every town. Every town needs its elders, not elders circuit riding uh, and shared. Among. No, they need to be rooted within the church and serve where they're planted. Uh, also, they need to be multiple. One man band is not described in scripture. Elders is always plural no matter where you read it. And then thirdly, they need to be qualified. And that's what the rest of this is all about. These are the qualifications of a pastor. If ever you want to find the Bible's job description of your church's leadership, here it is. It's in one other place that Paul wrote. And between those two places, there you have it. So let's go through it. What are the qualifications? You'll notice by the time we get to the bottom of this list that uh, most of it involves character, not necessarily knowledge or skill. You can be trained and you can hone skills, but character is either there or it's not, and a lot of these have more to do with character than anything else. So basically, we're told hire character first and then train them well. Uh, if anyone is above reproach, that's the big umbrella that, that everything else can be uh, nested underneath. It means blameless or without accusation, an irreproachable reputation in the community. Don't that sound like stuff that you hear thrown around when it's an election year? Doesn't it? Irreproachable, reputation in the community, blameless, without a, accusation. Is it true, though? Or is that just what they say on the front end? They've already sold their soul to the machine, whatever you want to say, and people will gripe at Hardee's for the next however long the term lasts. Well, as far as the scriptures go, uh, this, this is not a joke. Uh, the general quality of character frames all the rest, which can be divided into three broad categories as we go on. We're going to talk about home life, public life, and church life. And you're in church today, so I think you have all three, too. There's, there's what we see when you're together with the rest of us. There's what people see when you're at your job or at Walmart or wherever else. And then there's what happens at home. And a lot of times, only people see that as those that live with you or when you have people over, if you act the same way when they're not over. You know, some of us are very good at uh, keeping up what looks great on Facebook, but good grief if there was a surprise attack. What would we see? What would we hear? So what we want to do here is make sure that we don't take any of these further than Paul meant for them to go. Because Paul didn't use the word faultless, and he didn't use the word perfect. It's blameless, which means they're, they're kind of Teflon-coated. If people want to smear them, everybody's going, what are you talking about? That's not the guy we know. They don't stick to him. So we need to watch ourselves so as not to take a wooden approach to this or any other passage. This goes for the whole Bible. What is a wooden approach? Uh, a lifeless, hard, wouldn't be compatible with a sin-stained world that we live in. It's just too high a bar that only Jesus could live up to, but none of the rest of us. That would be a wooden approach. And the, the first specific one right out of the gate here would be a great... Uh, way to try on whether or not we like a wooden pharisaical approach or if we can hear Paul for what he's saying and be true to it. The husband of one wife. That's the first one. What about a single guy? 
we're going to be wooden, we have to say no. You got to be married first. Okay, how long do we need to wait on that? Well, how long does it take to find the right one? Well, can he make up his mind? I mean, it could be a long time, right? What about someone who's widowed? You say, uh, well, we're so sorry for your loss, but you're going to need to turn in your resignation. It's been a good run, but God knew you were going to be no longer the husband of one wife, so you're not qualified for the position. Now, I'm being a little cute here, but that's the wooden approach, a pharisaical type approach to something like this. Um, I think what it means here, taking into account that Crete, where this guy's working, polygamy was rampant. Lots of wives. So this means something to them that it might not mean to us, at least in this part of America. Um, It wasn't meant to be a joke. (laughs) We've all had our laugh. I'm laughing at you, not my preaching here. Uh, Literally, not woodenly, literally, these Greek words describe a one-woman man. So at the most basic level, it describes a man who's married to one woman and continues to live in fidelity and harmony with the same woman. And everybody knows it. Not to be, which would be unfaithful, or some suspicion in that regard, would, would be a deal breaker. It, it would... It would not fit under uh, the husband of one wife. I don't know that it's any more complicated than that, though I've sat in meetings before and listened to people pull out their favorite commentary and say, I think it means this, I think it means this. And and what what you're left with in that regard is a miserable uh, case-by-case basis. But I'm afraid that's where a lot of our life is lived, isn't it? Case by case basis. Not that, that uh, we've got uh, you know, some type of ethical goo that we just you know, trod through to see what happens on the other side. I think it has everything to do with reputation. And does it fit under the first one? Above reproach. Does anyone have anything to say about any infidelity, any wrongdoing, any cheating, any impropriety, any, this doesn't look good? If he passes that test, according, go to the next one. And his children are believers. Okay, how woodenly do we want to hold that? What's the age of accountability? And who knows when we see it such that we can determine they're past the age of accountability and they're not saved yet, fire him or mark him off the list. That one might even be more difficult than the other. I think it describes a man who is effectively accomplished in his home what we hope he'll facilitate in the church. Vacuum salesman comes to your house. Got this fancy schmancy new vacuum. It'll do everything for a price. There's only one question I'm going to ask the guy. So, how do you like yours? And if they do anything but say, I love it, If they blink, shut the door. He doesn't buy his own product. Now, that's a salesman and that's business. But a guy's home that doesn't look like you want your church to look, I think you've got your answer. Now, does that mean that he can have rowdy kids? What if it's just a rowdy kid? 
What if he's got 10 and one of them's rowdy? What if he's got two and one of them's rowdy? What if he's just got one and they're rowdy? Well, give him some time. He might have an unrowdy kid. Do we throw them out for being rowdy? Do we throw them out for being wayward? Uh, what about that whole prodigal son type story? You could learn some things there. In fact, I think that story's harder on the kid who stayed home with a bad attitude. There's, there's different ways. See, if, if this was woodenly held to, they'd have had to throw my father out. Now, we've talked about my brother before. You know some of the stories. All his improprieties, iniquities were out in the world for everybody to see. But his brothers were locked away in his brain. Nobody could see him but God. I was pretty good at that. I don't use the word that I was too smart to get caught. No, I was too chicken to do it in public. But I could think about it all day long. In fact, some of those things that were carried out were my idea to start with. (laughs) So what do you do with all that? Now, the word for this tends to point to people under the roof of their parents. But are they allowed a rebellious stage? Does it grieve the father or is he aloof or careless as to what, or not even know what his kids are involved in? It's a microcosm. What you want in your church is what you should hope to see in his home. And if they're different, then why expect that he could do something professionally that he doesn't do where it matters more with his family? So how the children respond will attest to the reality of Christianity in the home. And then that whole business of, well, you know, preacher's kids. That's a problem. That is a reputation, which means that churches could do better in choosing men who they give the responsibility of following through with what God said. We're going to see the Jeremiah 17, 9 heart come up a lot in this. Even your elders have a wicked heart that will lie to them. That's why they need saving. That's why we all need to be saved. So we, we have to take a humble approach to this as much as not taking a wooden approach. His home has rejected his leadership, oversight, shepherding. The church probably will too. He's also not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I'm going to give you a a disclaimer here. There's a whole range of nuance in those Greek words that some of you have translated as not accused of dissipation. I doubt any of you use the word dissipation this week or this lifetime, maybe. Uh, It calls for a man whose life is known not to be chaotic, disorderly, wasteful, or otherwise filled with drama. Do you know anybody like that? Um, it just seems there are people in life that tend to, to live from crisis to crisis with short little pieces of calm in between rather than live from calm to calm with short little crises in between. <laughs> and maybe that you're related to them. Um, we all love those types of people because it's, it's really fun to be around and watch that kind of stuff, right? Do you want that as the leadership role of your church, your business, your school, your retirement? There's nothing wrong with any of that. 
There's nothing wrong with being clumsy or accident prone. You know, every family's got one that cuts themselves with, on Christmas morning when they get their pocket knife right out of the box. Oh, I'm bleeding already. <laughs> you know, I think uh, all three of us boys have done that on Christmas. Check, sets a lawnmower on fire and falls off the roof all in one week. You should take him off the list. Well, ask him about the week before and watch the week later. <laughs> See if there's a pattern. Everybody can have a bad day, bad week, bad month, bad year maybe. But... Uh, I have to believe Paul put this in there on purpose because he's known what can happen if you don't pay attention to such things. Um, And then back again to verse 7, which is a short summary. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So he's, he's clear that they're held to a higher standard. A man's reckless or even casual approach to his marital vows his inability to train and govern his children, or his life often described as a train wreck could place or call into question his ability to lead a church. The standard is tight because the stakes are high. I wish I wasn't as familiar with some of these things as as I have just by the way I grew up. I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, 30 years almost in one place. There were other pastors before that. I don't know what it's like to not go to church every time the doors are open. And in one setting, teaching through a text, I was able to say in the church my father served for almost 30 years, hey, if there was anybody who could tell whether or not there were cracks in that veneer and there was something fake underneath, I would know. I've been there for the whole ride. I know he's human. I know he makes mistakes. I've heard him say he's sorry. But I can say, with this book as my witness, he did it by the book. And he lived a Christ-like life in a fallen human body that now has been glorified. Uh, There are costs. The high office of overseer has high demands on the character of the man. It's challenging because it's supposed to be. We're putting God's stamp on this and expecting the world to agree that this is how God runs his business. Uh, David's reminded me of someone we know who calls the church the greatest show on earth because some places it is. We don't want to do that. It doesn't want to look like entertainment or some type of rodeo. We want this to look like what Christ would do if he was still here. So from this point on, he shortens uh, the, the words and picks up the pace. There are five negative qualifications and six positive qualifications, and we'll have to pick up the pace too. But uh, if you look there... We'll count them. These are the negatives. He must not, one, be arrogant, two, quick-tempered, three, a drunkard, four, violent, or five, greedy. So let's look at those, and then we'll get to the six things he's supposed to be. He must not be arrogant. That's overbearing. That means he'll run you over if you get in his way. Disregarding the interests of others to please himself, primarily. My way or the highway. God's gift to the ministry. Maybe God's gift to the world. 
uh, that can't be. God's gift to the world is his son, Jesus Christ. This guy has to look like a servant. Jesus made himself of no reputation. And it should not shock us because this is the way the world is run in business in America. The most narcissistic guy climbs to the top of those biggest companies. There's a reason why nobody wants to be in the room because he, nobody can please him. It's perfection because that's his product and that's what people pay for. And he's got all kinds of hatchet men who can take care of business so he can go take care of business. That's business. That's not a church and it's not the way Jesus was when he was here. We shouldn't be surprised that that fleshly heart wants to do that. And we shouldn't be surprised that some of these guys get hired and the church grows quickly because there are results and they can charm a pulpit committee. That's part of who they are, right? That's not the way Jesus was. So overbearing, he must not be arrogant. And then the second one kind of goes along with the same personality um, or quick-tempered. Cross him and you'll see him readily yield to anger. Pastoral work demands patience. Why? Now I don't have enough time. It's a lot of work. But some of it extra demanding as far as patience goes. It's tough. Uh, think of Titus here. He's got to get the whole island. And we haven't even gotten to the description of these people. He's got to get it in order. There's going to be times where he wants to get angry. I've got a simple job and you won't do it. Well, it doesn't matter. He's got to have patience. Uh, James said, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's usually how it gets messed up. We think we're righteously angry when really we're just personally uh, discombobulated. And we get what we shouldn't be mad about confused with what we could be mad about and really vengeance is mine saith who the lord he'll fix it just keep going let's see here a drunkard that's next literally alongside of wine not woodenly but literally that's what those words mean so you got a guy and he's right next to the wine as if he needs it wherever he is it is so this is a dependency, is, is what Paul is describing. And um, though specifically he must not be an alcoholic, I don't think we should be restricted only to alcohol. There's several substances that can do the same thing. It could have been a prescription, which was a big help. Now it, it's a big crutch. Uh, it could be retail therapy. That stuff's a drug too. We understand some parts of the brain now. There's this serotonin stuff that's squirt out of something that gives you a good feeling to tell you whatever that was, your body liked it. So keep doing it. Do that enough, you can turn really anything into a habit, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. So the idea is including those who frequently fail to recognize their limits regarding any form of substance. Because you can take just about anything too far. And John Stott, I like the way he puts things. I think this is, uh, this is a good way to put it. Not all are total abstainers, but all are called to moderation and temperance as far as candidates for leadership, oversight, and shepherding within the church. Because the Bible says of alcohol, it's a gift in one part of the Bible. 
It says it's a mocker in another part of the Bible. Both of them are true. We don't want what's meant as a gift to turn your leadership into a joke. That's the prohibition here. He doesn't need to be falling all over himself, literally speaking. Then violent. Uh, That means a striker ready to assail an opponent with words or fists. Now, I only know one guy. Uh, You might have heard him sing at my father's funeral. He's been a pastor in the past. He's the only one that I know that was ever invited by a congregant to meet him in the parking lot over the service and finish this thing. (laughs) It didn't happen. Um, But the, the invitation was given. Now, I've been around people who use their words a lot more effectively than fists, and I would rather have taken a punch to the face than listen to what I had to hear. Either way, it, it, it's, it's, it's right out. You can't do it. Um, and at this point, we're thinking, good grief, what are these people like in Crete where you got to have this list? Can't punch people in the face, be drunk, arrogant, um, Wouldn't we like to blame it all on a bunch of rowdy misfits in Crete? We all know Americans are just as good at taking everything to excess, whether their virtue or their vices. It's the same thing. It's no different. And then the last of the five don't-dos is greedy for gain. So using his office to profit, willing to procure it by disgraceful means, tempted to use his office for an unfair financial advantage. It doesn't mean he can't be a man of wealth. Uh, Many think that Paul had significant means. Um, Savvy and successful businessmen can make wonderful elders when they come to their wealth honorably and have a generous spirit. Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he was humble. Uh, So money's not the problem. It's wanting, it's being greedy for the money and using your position um, to rip people off. Those were the five must-nots. Next are the five, or the six, rather, musts. Verse 8, we'll count them, but hospitable. That's one, two, lover of good, three, self-controlled, four, upright, uh, five, holy, and six, disciplined. The word but there's your transition from don't do this to do this. You should be hospitable. And literally, the definition of that is a lover of strangers. That's key because we don't want to make this mean something Paul didn't mean for it to mean. We're in the South. Hospitality here means an open door and food like ain't be made and a porch where you talk all day, every day, because there's nothing to do. This isn't Mayberry. And if you had a church of a hundred, I don't know that one man could sit on a hundred porches. If he sat on a porch every day, he only gets around the church three times a year. What if it's 300 people? Can you say that he's hospitable if you only see him once a year? What if we just say that's impossible if it's just eating pie and talking about whatever? This says lover of strangers. The least of these, the outcast, the person God may have sent your way. And the elder needs the perception, not as a fisher, but a fisherman. There's a difference. A fisherman or fisherman has some skill. 
He knows where the fish are. He can think like fish. He knows what bait. He's good at it. A fisher likes reeling in fish. But to sit in the sun for an hour with nothing biting? Mm-mm. Well, it's because it's a hobby. You know? So a lover of strangers welcomes those who are different, overcomes the natural tension that exists between them because of their differences. This is the opposite of the favoritism that, you know, you see some of these churches and they make a big deal out of the fact that they've got a celebrity or an athlete. They put them on the front row. Look what we got. You know, this is special. And you see the pastor with them constantly. I know of a name. If I mentioned it, you'd probably know it. I used to listen to the guy on the radio. Before he made shipwreck of his ministry, he rode around in a big fat limo with basketball players. I don't think that's hospitality. I think it's the person in need. Uh, Fail someone in time of grief, you might not get a second chance to earn their trust. That's a legitimate lead. You stop stuff for that. But if a pastor of a decent-sized church went to every birthday party, every graduation, every event that the church that he serves has planned, can he actually get through that first list, talking about his home? Or will they long ago said, he loves that church more than he loves us. I'm done with him. I never see him. Everybody else gets his ear. I get nothing. It's a miserable balance. It's humanly impossible. But I think you can be hospitable without being omnipresent. But it'll take God's help and the church's patience. He's a lover of good. Qualified elder is an ally and zealous supporter of the good including men and deeds. He talks about good stuff, congratulates good stuff, encourages with good stuff. Y'all know Alistair Begg? really like that guy, especially his accent. I remember, and I think it was this uh, passage long ago I was listening, and he talked about how sometimes in the car he kind of vents about stuff from Parkside. And he said, I'll just go off. They did this and they did that. I can't believe. And if I had to put up with all that, how do they expect me to blah, 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 blah? He said he had one son from the back seat who would usually, when he finished, would say, and that was a kind word from your pastor. (laughs) Now, Dad didn't say enough of that stuff for us to do it, and if we did, he'd probably pull the car over. Um, So I, I don't remember saying things like that. Um, and long ago, me and Corey kind of adopted the same thing. Hey, we'll limit what we say with our children in the car, <laughs> good or bad. I remember my brother repeating some things that my brother said to the that my father said to the person my dad said it about. You just got one in the family. All the rest of us are like, mm-hmm. <laughs> got out of the car and went straight to this fella. Hey, you know what my dad said in the car on the way to church? So another kind word from your pastor. That, that's probably more, uh, you know, in our staff meetings here, not in, <laughs> not in the van. It's your other pastors here that help me understand. I just said a kind word, you know. <laughs> Fill in the blank however you choose. Where are we at? Uh, self-controlled. The elder must be in control of his mind and emotions so that he can act rationally and discreetly, sensibly. I like the word equanimity. That means maintaining your composure even under stress and able to make a decision. 
Sometimes you need a, a guy who, when everything's exploding, he can just look at it all, ask for some help, phone a friend, look something up, and make a sound decision. Here's what we'll do. Um, but to get caught all up in it, that, you need some, some, some self-control. Um, upright. That means just, conforming his conduct to right standards. A just man seeks fairness for others, but rarely for himself. And decision-making, the first question, as far as the ministry goes, as far as what your family does, as a Christian, should always be, what's the right thing to do? Because there's an easier thing to do, and there's a uh, political thing to do. Uh, there's an expedient thing to do. There's a thing I can do that'll garner favor in this section of whatever uh, over against the risk of this smaller section. You can do all that politically, or you can just say, you know what, we're going to do the right thing, whatever it is. We just got to figure out what the right thing is. That would be upright. No matter if it's popular, no matter if you take heat, what is the right thing to do? Holy. That means personal piety. It means reverent. If upright has to do with our dealings with others, holy has to do with our dealings with God. We don't use that word much. It just means set apart. This sanctuary is holy. It's set apart. We only do one thing, what we're doing right now uh, with this space. And as far as Christians, we need to know there's certain, certain things we're set apart to and set apart from because we're Christians. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the right way. Um, and then there's disciplined. Having the inner strength that enables him to control his bodily appetites and passions. There's a whole range of emotions, appetites, passions. And the devil knows exactly where the weaknesses are. Without self-control, which, which is maintained by discipline... A man's an easy target for the devil. That's where you pray for your pastors. That they be self-controlled and disciplined. Because the moment they're not, they open that gate. And don't think that the devil's going to sit and hesitate. Should I? Shouldn't I? I got a, a little crack. He'll take advantage of it. Um, Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight: A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You just take your doors off the hinges in the, wherever you live? No, you lock them. Keep the bad guys out. We should put locks on the TVs and computers too. Keep the bad guys out. The devil knows what he's doing, and there's really no area in life that qualifies for an exemption. The leader of a church should walk point in the parade of discipline, whether it's following through on a commitment, showing up on time for an appointment, or what they put their bodies, or what they eat, or what they drink. Uh, the way they spend their time or their neglect of having time away. God said we need to rest. Uh, he does that so we know we depend on Him. We can't do it all on our own. Somebody never takes a vacation, they will die earlier. Right? You have to do this. It's called discipline. So we finish where we said we would. Verse 9. After all, he's a teacher. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. 
Do you want this man to know the truth and be able to contradict the false? Then he'll have to have a tight grip on the word that was taught to him so that he can teach that to someone else who can then hold it tightly enough to teach somebody else and on and on and on. So holding fast the faithful word refers to men who base their lives on a sound doctrine as it was taught by a trustworthy authority. Trustworthy underlines the Christian gospel as perfectly reliable and completely worthy of his confidence. You want to say at the end of the day, I don't know if I believe everything he says, but I believe he believes it. It comes from the scriptures. So the question you could just underscore the whole delivery this morning from the study of this passage. Do these candidates for leadership, oversight, shepherding, hold it firmly, and do they hold firmly to it? I think that gets it. Again, leaders, overseers, shepherds, they must know the truth, live the truth, teach the truth, defend the truth against a clever, ruthless enemy. Church, accept nothing less. Let's pray. Father in heaven.